Hey, good morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'm glad that you're with us this morning. If you're uh, online with us this morning, we're glad you're here too. And uh, we are starting a new series this morning that I'm very excited about. We're going to have the opportunity uh, this fall to walk through the beginning of Genesis uh, together. Well, not actually the very beginning of it. We're going to start in uh, chapter 12, and we're going to go almost to the end of it. Uh, But we're considering uh, the question of who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the question. If you've got your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter 12. I want to read that here in a moment, uh, the first few verses of Genesis 12. And then I want to pray for us. And as I pray uh, for our time this morning, I also just want to pray um, in remembrance of this weekend uh, 20 years ago. I know if you were alive on September the 11th of, of 2001, you remember where you were and what you were doing when you found out that um, terrorists uh, had flown planes into the World Trade Center and then all of the things that ensued after that. I I know um, I can remember exactly where I was and what that next 24, 48, 72 hours was like. And if you have been watching some of the same things I've been watching over the last few days, uh, it has probably taken you back to, um, to a time where I just remember that this was, you know, one of those times it happened on a Tuesday. I remember that Wednesday night, which would be the 12th today, of we were living in Dallas and churches all over the place were filled with people gathered and praying and a lot of people looking for answers, a lot of people looking for comfort. And so... I don't want us to forget that in the midst of what was a very tragic time, we very much, many of us, found ourselves gathering together and calling out to God. So, let me read Genesis 12. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll talk through it. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old, and he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people that they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, 
Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Moriah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved up the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, still going toward Negev. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we have come this morning to gather and, and to, to worship you by singing and by praying and, Father, by encouraging one another. And we've come to gather around the hearing of your word, what you have inspired, what you have revealed and told us about yourself. And so, Father, I pray that as we look into this passage, we look into these words, we look into what you revealed, that we would see you for who you are. Father, it's it's good for us to remember you tell your people throughout the ages to remember. Father, I can't help but remember that 20 years ago and on this day or the evening of this day, so many of us were gathered in a time that felt very insecure and very confusing and chaotic and Father, there was anger and there was grief. There was confusion and insecurity. And yet, Father, in every community across this nation, men and women gathered and children to seek you, to pray to you, to find comfort in your word. Father, we also recognize as we remember that how quickly we forget those things. And so, Father, I pray that you would kindle in us the hope we find in you. So, Father, we ask that you do that in us. And we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, let me start with this question, and the question is, what's in a name? If you're a Shakespeare fan, you know that Juliet's famous words to Romeo start with that question, what's in a name? And then goes on, that which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. And it's this, you know, as Shakespeare writes it, it's this profound statement that it suggests that, uh, that names themselves 
that don't hold any worth or meaning. It means that, that we, what we call something is not important, that the essence remains regardless of what we call it. That the simple act of, of labeling something is, is for the purpose of distinguishing one thing or one person from another person, and that that's all that it is. I, I will tell you, my, my personal experience is just the opposite. You might not know this about me, but my first name is Brian. Ross is my middle name. When I went to college, I tried to adopt Brian. The multiple S's have always bugged me. Ross, straighter, it's breathy and passive and, you know, hissy. It's always driven me crazy. And I thought, well, in college, I'm going to change that. It's the right time to change it. Embrace Brian. It'll make things easier, I thought. The problem is, people would address me or they'd call my name, and it was always met with this blank stare. It didn't register. I mean, Ross was my name. It's what my mom called me. It's what my siblings called me. It's what my friends called me. The memories we shared, the stories we told, those were of Ross, not Brian. What I discovered, Ross has meaning. There's intimacy tied up with it. There was memory, there was affection, there was some malice, but, but that's how I was known. Well, in, in the Bible, what you find is that, is that God makes a point of introducing himself in a certain way. In a way that has meaning. In fact, if we take Moses to be the writer of Genesis, which I do, Moses is writing to a people wandering in the wilderness, wondering the question, who is God? Who is he? Well, you get through Genesis and you turn to Exodus, and this is where Moses' part of the story begins. And it's in Exodus chapter 3 that Moses, after he's had kind of a wild uh, first part of his life, he was almost uh, the victim of, of Pharaoh's purging. He ends up actually now being raised in Pharaoh's house. He murders an Egyptian. He goes on the run. He lives in the wilderness. He, and then all of a sudden in Exodus chapter 3, after two very jam-packed chapters, in Exodus chapter 3, we find Moses hidden away in the wilderness up on a mountain, tending sheep. And he comes upon a burning bush. And Moses doesn't know much, but he knows that bushes don't just burn indefinitely without being consumed. And this is what he's seeing, a bush that's burning but not being consumed. And he knows he's on holy ground. And all of a sudden, a voice comes to Moses. This is what it says in Exodus 3, 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God tells him he wants him to go. He wants him to go back to Pharaoh. He wants to tell him to let this people go. And, and then Moses says, well, when I go, well, who should I tell him sent me? And he says this, well, what, what is his name? What, when they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You know, it's interesting that when God introduces himself to Moses and essentially to Moses' people, the Israelites, and Moses said, well, I, they're going to ask me who sent me. Who, who should I tell them? What's your name? What should I, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that's my name forever. I've been fascinated by that for some time. That of all the ways that God could introduce himself, of all the things that God could call himself, and listen, this isn't the only way that God's described. He's described as the God of Israel, the God of peace, the God of mercy, the God of justice. There are all kinds of ways that God is described in relation to his characteristics and his attributes. But when asked by Moses in that moment, who are you? This is who he says. So I've wondered and I've thought and pressed into Scripture, what does he mean when he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac? And Jacob? What's so special about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob for that matter? Well, that's what I want us to look at this fall. Let's go back to these characters that encounter God. Let's see what it is about God in his relationship with those men and the, and the women and these stories. What, what is it? How does God reveal himself and what does he mean when he says this? And the first thing it brings me to when I ask, well, what's so special about Abraham is that Abraham is actually very unlikely. There's not anything really special about Abraham. You see, the context up to now, before you get to Genesis 12, is that you have the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I went to seminary to learn that bit. But there's this context up to now, and, and what happens in Genesis 12 is not what we expect to happen. 
You see, you've had these three major crises that have happened in the history of the world up to this point. You've had the fall of mankind where the serpent comes and he tempts man and woman in the garden and and sin enters the world and, and this is very, very bad. Death enters the world. Well, not only do you have the fall, but you have the flood that comes in chapters 6 through 8. And then after that, you have the Tower of of Babel that comes in in Genesis chapter 11. And all of this presents us with a world that desires to live apart from, that is absolutely pleased with themselves to live without God. Because of that, you find the the world is cursed, and then it's destroyed, and then it gets scattered. And so what we expect in Genesis chapter 12 is that the end should come. That after all of this, I mean, that the judge is going to appear, and as one writer says, that hot lava of divine judgment should petrify the world. That it'd be one of the shortest stories ever told. That the humanity that God created went awry and did it quickly. Well, Genesis chapter 12, interesting, instead of God giving to the world what it deserves, a world that for 11 chapters has been mocking God, been defiant towards God, rebellious, blasphemous, rejected all of his blessings. What happens is in Genesis chapter 12, God's going to show up and he's going to insist on blessing the world. Despite their rebellion, God is determined to bless them. And he's going to do it through a man. He's going to do it through this man that is called Abram. Later we'll know him as Abraham. So the first answer to the question, who is God when we consider these, uh, th- this name that he gives, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is God? Well, he's a God who insists on blessing a violent and rebellious world. He's a God who insists on blessing violent and rebellious and mocking and guilty and sinful men and women. That God insists on blessing you. He's determined to bless you. See, I don't know if you ever thought about that. Our initial response, I think, our natural response, who is God? God's the one whom I'm in trouble with. Who is God? God's the one who's ultimately, perfectly disappointed with me. Who is God? He's the one who knows everything about me. And couldn't be more unpleased. See, that's naturally how we think about God. The reality is this is a God who shows up. And when he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's 
God announcing, I am a God who is determined to bless you. That's what I want you to know about me. Well, back to the question, what's so significant about Abraham? Well, here's what's fascinating. The few verses before the, the very end of, of chapter 11 in Genesis is kind of a transition. It gives us a genealogy of Abraham, like where he's from. You, you find that this man is from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is about 100 miles down the road from Babylon, ancient Babylon. It's southeast of Babylon toward the north end of the Persian Gulf. That's where he's from. And what you find is that area, those people, they weren't worshipers of God. They were pagans. They were polytheists. I mean, we're not given a lot about Abraham. We're told where he's from. We're told the names of a few family members. We're told the name of his wife and the name of his uh, nephew. But we're told enough to know just how unlikely he is. Abraham isn't this bright shining star in the midst of a dark humanity that God goes, man, finally somebody has shown up and, and worships me. No. Here's what we find from Joshua 24. Joshua tells all the people of Israel, he says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah and the father of Abraham and of Nahor. They served other gods. In fact, when Abraham calls, or when God calls Abraham, he's calling a pagan idolater. It boils down to this. Who is God? When he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he means for us to know he's a God of unexplainable grace. What one man says it this way, he says, if you think you know why God has shown his grace to you, think about it. How would you answer the question? Why has God shown his grace to you? This writer says, if you think you know why God has shown his grace to you, then you don't know yourself. And you don't have the foggiest idea what grace is. God's grace is unexplainable. It comes to us not when we're looking for him. It comes to us because he came looking for us. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1. He knew this about his own self. God chose what's foolish in the world. God chose what's weak in the world. He did it to shame the wise and to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. Well, let's look at this call that God makes. And the first three verses, it says, now God, or now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. First thing to know is that this is a This is a call that's very specific. It's specific to a person. God didn't send a spam email to thousands and thousands of people just hoping someone might respond, notice it in their junk mail. It's not a robocall waiting for the sucker on the other end, you know, that's going to actually listen to the whole thing. No, it's a very specific call. It's too A person, it's to Abram. He's chosen by God. It is a call that required faith on Abraham's part. It says this in Hebrews. Hebrews in chapter 11 comments. It's it's contemplating what was going on with Abram. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. It was faith enough to say yes to God, even though he had no idea where God was sending him. In Lord of the Rings, if you've read it, there's a hobbit, Frodo, and he's told he's got to leave the Shire. And the Shire's, you know, man, Shire's comfortable. There's five or eight meals a day, and it's plush. And he's got to go on a journey, and it's a journey to a distant land. And when the shock wears off, he, he says this. He says, of course, I've, I've sometimes thought about going away. But I imagine that as kind of a holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better, ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger. As for where I'm going, it would be difficult to give that away, for I have no clear idea myself. Yet, where am I to go? And by what shall I steer What is to be my quest? It all makes me feel very small and very uprooted and, well, very desperate. Sometimes faith feels that way. The call to follow God and you have no idea where he's leading you. I want you to notice something, though. In the midst of this call, God does something really remarkable. He says over and over to Abraham, whom he calls, I will, I will, I will. All the things that God will. First, he says, I'll make you, I will make you into a great nation. He gives him a promise of a a people and then he gives him a promise of a place and, and tells him that he'll have a home I will show you promises and protection he says to Abraham I will bless you 
those who bless you. And those who mistreat you, I will curse. Later on in Genesis 28, he says to him, I, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And he promises this, this program, this I will in you bless all the families. They'll all be blessed. And I will do that. This, Abram's going to be the funnel through which God's going to end up blessing the whole world. And you can contrast, we're not looking at the second half of Genesis 12, but you can contrast that the, the faith in the I wills of God and the contrast of the fear of Abraham and the they will of Egypt. Well, you have God's call, you have Abraham's obedience. It begins in verse 4, so Abraham went. He went as the Lord had told him. It's a very simple description. It is a very simple obedience. It tells us a few, you know, that he went and, and how old he was. He was 75 years old at the time and tells us the route that he traveled. But there's so much that's not told to us. Surely this was a major deal. I mean, he travels from ultimately from Ur to Negev, which would have been over a thousand miles on foot at 75 years old. It's an old scholar, a French scholar, and he tells about being converted while he was reading Calvin's Institutes. That happens, I guess. But notice what he says. He said, I learned from Calvin, or from reading Calvin, actually from reading Calvin about this passage. I learned from reading Calvin that all the fears about health and the uncertain future that had hitherto dominated my life were without much importance and that the only thing that mattered was obedience to the will of God and to care for His glory. The simplicity of the obedience. So Abraham went as the Lord had spoken to him. Simplicity of obedience. It's, it's faith to believe that God will do what He says He will do. See, Abraham has to leave what is unknown, embrace what is known. He leaves what is known and embrace what is unknown. That, that's faith. It's the beginning of Abraham's faith. A, a faith that, that will falter and a, a faith that will grow. And faith is this. You can think about faith this way. It's God drawing us further than our knowledge of himself. It's God drawing us further than than the answers to all of our questions. See, faith 
It'll lead us to trust not only what we know about God. Faith draws us into trusting our life with the God we know. See, faith draws us further than our intellectual assent or the things we intellectually agree with. Faith draws us further than our comfort and our objections and all the circumstances in our life. It draws us into deeper relationship, trusting God because we know Him. Faith in the God who not only created the heavens and the earth and tells the sea Come to this point, no more. But it's faith in the God who knows us intimately. This is what Abraham's going to discover. Who is God? It's God who knows me intimately and desires that I not know just about him, but that I know him. Well, the rest of this section, Abraham's going to worship. He goes to Shechem. It's the center of Canaan. He gets there. What's described, this oaks of, of uh, Morah, it, it, it's probably a, a shrine, a pagan shrine. And instead of worshiping the pagan gods or any of the gods he'd known before, the picture is Abraham shows up in the middle of this pagan world and worships the one true God, the God he now trusts. And then in the next verses, that was verse 7, in the very next verse you go to 8 and it tells us he, he worships again. He, he builds an altar to the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He offers a sacrifice. He gives a testimony. Could be that he's just calling on God in prayer. It could be that he's making a proclamation about who God is, the truth of God and his character and all of his grace in the middle of all of these pagans. But one thing's interesting in verse 8. Look at it again with me. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I don't want to make too much of this, but if you pitch a tent, that's certainly temporary, but if you build an altar, that's something meant to be permanent. That the energy that he spent wasn't for himself, it was for God. It wasn't about making a name for himself. The energy he expends is to make a name for God. Think what Abraham realized. God promised that God promised he was going to make his name great. And so, in a sense, he was going to leave that to God. What Abraham was spending his time doing, his energy was directed towards the name of God, towards, towards the greatness of God. Abraham's life, don't miss this, is absolutely upended. Settled is not what 
Abraham's life would be. The calling is a call to wander, to sojourn. Those are words that, that come with the idea of restlessness. The call was to leave where he was, follow God into unknown places on an unknown timetable for the rest of his life. And what you discover is that God was calling Abraham to something that was bigger than what an earthly life could fully see. God was calling Abraham to an eternal life because that's where the promises would ultimately be fulfilled. There's three things I want to say about that because I don't want you to miss it. When we talk about who is God, when God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, it means he's a God who makes covenant promises that are too immeasurable to fulfill in, in any one lifetime. And they knew it. You see, I think sometimes our view of God is so small that what, what, what we cling to as promises of God, we want all of those to be fulfilled in our lifetime or in this weekend or by next week or at least six months from now or five years from now. And the truth is that we have a God who's called us and loved us and bid us to follow him by faith. And what he promises us and what he has for us is far more than we could ever experience in this temporary lifetime. What God calls us to is an eternal life with him. Hebrews 11, it makes this point as it looks back. It says that they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged. For the little time they were here, they were strangers. They were exiles on earth. But that God's promises were meant forever. They lived in tent. They knew their forever home in heaven awaited. We might say it this way also. Second thing, God of ancient, the God of ancient promises is the God of eternal fulfillment. This is probably the same way to say in the first thing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's just Sadducees, they come, Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. Jesus knows what they're doing. And Jesus says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, where we started this morning. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Which means the promises that God made to you not even death can separate you from those promises. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God of resurrection. He brings life from death. But maybe who is God? Let's look at this one. The transcendent and infinite God. 
is also a very intimate and relational God. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about how God is transcendent. He's greater than the moon and the sun and the stars because He created all those things. He's greater than any other God you've ever heard about or thought about or dreamed up or carved with your hands or bowed before in worship. God is the author of all life. That's who He is. But when you get to Genesis chapter 12, you find that God is intimate and relational. He'll walk with Abraham, and Abraham will walk with God. And there's much he'll learn about God and know about God. But ultimately, Abraham comes to know who God is. He knows him. That's why when you get all the way to Genesis chapter 22, God says, Abraham, I want you to go. I'm going to send you to a mountain. It's very funny because he says, I'm going to have you go to one, but I'm not telling you which one yet. You remember how this goes. I call you, you follow, I tell you later. But when you get there, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. And it's a passage that bothers us. And we'll look at it in the weeks to come. Why would Abraham do that? Not only why would he do that, but why would he have the faith to tell the guys as he set it up the mountain, don't worry, we'll be back in a little while. Why would he have the faith when his son Isaac looks around and goes, okay, we got the wood and we got the fire. We're missing something. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham has the faith to say, God will provide himself the lamb, my son. It's not because he knows about God, but because he knows God. See, that's what God wants. To say the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is a God you don't just know about, but a God that you know. And one who knows you. Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher, had a radical encounter with God. In 1654, he comes to know God. Comes to know God, the God he's known about. He writes this, in fact, it was sewn on the inside of his jacket after he wrote it so he would never forget it. It said, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12. Fire! All capital. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God. It was a powerful 
encounter. Fire. It's probably thinking about the burning bush. He even quotes that section, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of philosophers, although he was a philosopher. Maybe he'd only known God philosophically until then. But now, he knew God with certitude and joy and peace. Do you know him? It's easy to show up in a Bible church. It's easy to get lost in here. It's easy to be here in a place where we talk a lot about who God is, about God. But I want us over this fall, I want us to the degree that we need to, for our faith to grow not in just about who God is, but our faith to grow in knowing God. Do you know Him? Jesus asked his disciples in Mark 8, and it's recorded in the other Gospels, who do people say that I am? And they answer, and then he looks and says, who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? You realize the disciples could answer the question right, but they didn't fully understood what it meant. Took them a while to embrace that. They were really wanting Jesus to be who they wanted him to be. And, and yet they had to come to the place of embracing him for who he is. Do you know him? If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. He's the lamb that you provided for the sacrifice. Your eternal son came and made the way for us to know who you are. That we don't have to live merely with knowledge about you, but that we can know you. And Father, we can experience certitude and joy and peace a grace that is indescribable but a grace that has overwhelmed us that we can grow in our faith even though we may falter and even though we may be filled with fear at times but a, a faith that, that calls us beyond what we know about you a faith that is grounded in knowing you and trusting you for who you are. So, Father, I pray you do that in us. And for anyone here that just that only know about you but don't know you, Father, I pray you would overwhelm them this morning. That your grace would pour out Father, they would follow you to the things we need to leave and follow you. Father, I pray you'd give us the faith and courage to do that. 
for where we feel afraid because we don't know where you're leading us, I pray you'd give us the faith to follow you and trust you. Father, draw us to your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, the only way we can pray. And by the power of your Spirit, amen.